This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2016. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. The uh, title of the message uh, tonight is God's Dermographia. God's Dermographia. And you've all been Googling today to try to find out what that is. Dermographia is very popular today, uh, not only with men, but also with women. The ancient practice of tattooing, derma, skin, Dermographia, the ancient practice of tattooing or inking or skin art is very much in vogue. Now, the point of my message tonight is not to debate the rights and wrongs of tattooing. That's for another occasion, but it won't be tonight. However, I want to let you into a secret. God has got a tattoo. I've never seen that in the Bible before. Well, you're going to see it now. The intriguing thing about God's tattoo, God's dermographia, is that it's very simple, it's very personal, and it's very profound. It's your name. It's your name. Listen to this, Isaiah 49, 16. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. God, metaphorically speaking, has inscribed, has tattooed, if you will, your name on his hands. Lovers often inscribe the name of their sweetheart on their body or elsewhere. It's a little road called the Posey Hill Road. And it's near Kilbride in County Andrum, near where my sweetheart lived. <laughs> She's looking at me saying, what is coming next? <laughs> and there's a big beech tree there. And I chose the beech tree because it's got a smooth surface and I carved a big heart with an arrow going through it. <laughs> And a D and an S. <laughs> now, you didn't think I was as romantic as that. <laughs> I was only about 15 or 16. <laughs> it's the best I could do at that time. Couldn't afford flowers. I couldn't afford roses. I couldn't afford milk tray. <laughs> now, in ancient times, uh, the Jews would draw on the palms of their hands the city of Jerusalem, the out line of the city of Jerusalem and its walls as a constant reminder of their devotion to their city, the place of their worship. But here in Isaiah 49, they're going through a very, very difficult time. Times are really, really hard. And it's so difficult and hard for them that they start accusing God of forsaking them. 
of forgetting them. And so God, let me just read this to you. Here's what God said. Verse 14 of Isaiah 49. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. And your sons shall make haste, and your destroyers, those who laid you waste, shall go away from you. Lift up your eyes, look around, and see all these gathered together and come to you. And as I live, saith the Lord, you shall surely clothe yourselves with them all as an ornament, and bind them on you as a bride does. For your waste and desolate places in the land of your destruction will even now be too small for the inhabitants. And those who, are swallowed, those who swallowed you up will be far away. And your children will have, uh, and the children you will have after you uh, have lost the others will say again in your ears, the place is too small for me. Give me a place where I may dwell. Then you shall say in your heart, who has begotten these for me? Since I lost my children and am desolate, a captive and wandering to and fro. And who has brought these up? There I was left alone, but these where were they? Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will lift my hand in an oath to the nations and set up my standard for the peoples. And they shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and queens your nursing mothers. And they shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord for they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. So God is promising Israel, his people, that they would come back from captivity. And when they come back, they would be so blessed and there'd be so many children that the place would be too small for them. There's a problem, by the way, in Israel right now. There's so many coming back that the place is too small. Economically, they're really under pressure because there's so many that has come back to live there. But that's another story. By the way, can I just say as an aside, I said about the ancient Jews, they would draw Jerusalem and its walls on their palm of their hand. And today UNESCO, United Nations Education and Cultural Organization, has declared it, that the Temple Mount area uh, no longer will be owned or recognized as Jewish or Christian, but Muslim only. That the Jews and Christians will have no rights to the Temple Mount area, which is a ridiculous, nonsensical, and even worse than an anti-Semite proclamation. But that's just by and by. It's not the subject tonight. And so God is reassuring his people that he has not forgotten them. Yes, in the first instance, all this applies to Israel, but it also applies to God's children everywhere at all times. We, you, me, we are inscribed on the palms of his hands. God loves you so much that metaphorically he has tattooed your name on the palms of his hands. 
So what does this say to us tonight? What encouragement can we get from this? Well, first of all, very obviously, it means that God holds you in the palm of his hand. Now, whenever a child is very small and it's walking down the street with its parent and a great big angry dog comes bounding up the pathway or if it walks into a room that's full of strangers, that child will instinctively want its mum or its dad to take its hand. And once the parent takes that child's hand, it immediately feels safer. Once that bigger, stronger hand goes around that little hand, it calms it and it feels safe. And God's big hands have got the hold of us. There's something reassuring to know tonight that we are held in the palm of his hand. When you're going through a tough time, you have that reassurance that he hasn't forgotten you. You may feel like he has. Circumstances may be overwhelming. And there's times they seem to be overwhelming. And you may not verbalize it, but you may think, God, have you forgotten me? What's happening? I, I don't see any change. There's no relief from this. But in those times, you must remember, God has not forgotten you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. There's something that's permanent about that, isn't there? The King James says, I have engraven you on the palms of my hands. It also means that God knows everything about you. You may say, well, I know that like the palm of my hand or I know like the back of my hand, it means the same thing. In other words, I am very familiar with that subject. I know that. And God is very, very familiar with each of us. He knows every single detail of our lives, every little thing he knows. Isn't that a comfort? To know that God knows the details of your life? That there's nothing has escaped his attention? That even the very hairs of your head are all numbered? <laughs> that even when you weep, Samus says, are not my tears in your bottle? Again, the ancients, when somebody would weep, would have a little bottle to catch their tears because they were precious. And God sees our tears. He sees the sparrow that falls. So this is the kind of God that this is talking about, one who knows every single detail of your life. He knows your dreams, your desires, your longings, your weaknesses, your strengths, your failures, your successes, your victories. He knows it all. And he still keeps you in the palm of his hand. And Jesus said, all these things 
the Gentiles seek. But your Father knows that you have need of these things. <laughs> he knows every need. Even before you pray, He knows every need. He still wants us to pray because that's relationship, but He knows before you pray. He knows every tomorrow. I always think it's a good job that God doesn't tell us about every tomorrow. But you have to walk on a daily walk. Because if it was bad, you couldn't stand it. And if it was good, you couldn't wait to get there. You wouldn't live today. Give us this day our daily bread. It's a daily walk, isn't it? 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows those who are his. God has made a special investment in your life. He's given his son for you. So therefore, he takes special care and there's special providence for our lives. He plans our good. He's already in our tomorrows. Doesn't that give you confidence? I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, Jesus said. And again, the ancient shepherds, they knew their sheep by name. They would call them individually. Each one had that moment with the shepherd. He would call them out of the flock individually. He'd put a little oil in their scratched noses. He pours in the oil and the wine to heal their hurts. Sends them back into the flock again. Calls another one out. Everyone he knows. The psalmist said in Psalm 139, How precious are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. When you put your head in the pillow tonight and when you eventually get to sleep, God never slumbers or sleeps. He's already thinking about you. He's thinking about your tomorrow. And he's planning your tomorrow. And he's going to be with you in your tomorrow. <laughs> so this means that God knows everything about us. Philip, when he met Jesus, he, he wanted to introduce Jesus to his friend Nathaniel. Remember what Jesus said as soon as he saw him? Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. How do you know me? <laughs> when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel was amazed at that. Because Nathaniel had a a place, a, a trysting place, a, a quiet place that only he went to, only he knew where he would meet with his God. But Jesus saw him under the fig tree. Knew every detail of his life. It's wonderful that the God that we serve, the God who saw little baby Moses in that basket of bulrushes and who was sent down the Nile in faith by his parents. 
And God looks at the little baby Moses. And he said, he'll do for me. I'll make him a great deliverer. Fast forward 80 years. Moses in the backside of the desert. He's looking after his father-in-law's sheep. Any thoughts of being the deliverer long since gone, he's messed up. But God hadn't finished with him. God causes a bush to burn and yet not be consumed. Really got his attention. And God spoke to him. God saw when he was that little baby. He saw when he was an 80-year-old man. Knew every detail of his life. And God thought, he's my deliverer. And he was. Saul of Tarsus stood watching the first Christian martyr being stoned to death, Stephen. They put their robes, uh, their coats at Saul's feet as a witness, chief witness. And God looked at him and God thought, I'll make a great preacher out of that persecutor. <laughs> I'll turn him into a great preacher. And you know the story how that later on when he was still breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the people of God and he went off to Damascus and there Jesus met him on that road. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in that moment he had a life-changing encounter with the Christ and became the greatest missionary evangelist that ever walked the face of the earth. You see, people only saw Saul of Tarsus as a bigoted, hateful Pharisee who just wanted to kill Christians. But God saw something beyond that and pierced his heart and changed him forever. God looked down and saw a poor young woman who was pure, who was chaste, who was a virgin, and said, Her womb will carry my son. <laughs> knew every detail of her life, knew exactly who she was, knew exactly what she was like. And he thought, I'll choose her. Her womb will be for my son. She looked, he looked at Joseph, who was her betrothed husband-to-be, a good man, an honorable man, a faithful man, a decent man. And he thought, he'll be the guardian for my son. In his formative years, he'll be the guardian for my son. See, God knows every detail of our lives. He knows exactly who we are. He knows what we are. He knows what he has planned for us. 
He knows how that will fit us. He knows how exactly that will do for us. So we never should fear the will of God. It's good, it's acceptable, it's perfect, the Bible says. We should never fear the will of God because it's the best thing for us that God could ever do is to have his will expressed in and through our very lives. Thirdly, it means that God has got a grip of your life. In John 10, I will give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Hmm. What, what a comforting, reassuring thought that is that we're held in the grip of God and no man on the face of the earth can prize us from God's grip no man and yes it is true in John 17 uh, Jesus speaking of the vine and the branches warns and encourages that we should abide in the vine. John 17 and 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The saintly Andrew Murray of old gave the, gave the best definition of backsliding I've ever heard. He says, backsliding is the result of slack abiding. Backsliding is the result of slack abiding. Jesus says, abide in the vine. Do everything in your power to walk with God. Abide in the vine. Isaiah 41 and 10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. Right hand is the hand of power and strength. Psalm 37, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. He delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his right hand. You feel you're slipping? Say, Lord, grip me tighter. <laughs> grip me tighter. Jude 24 now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Who is able to keep you from falling. You don't have to fall. He can keep you from falling. All we have to do is abide in the vine and feel the grip of God in our lives. It means God leads and guides you. Psalm 31, 15. Our times are in God's hands. 
Before we came into this building, I could not have told you where Moira was on the map. It had put a gun to my head, I couldn't have told you. Never been in it in my life. Didn't even know it existed. Sorry to say that, for those of you from Moira, but I had no reason to be here. Never any reason to travel this direction. I led a very sheltered life. <laughs> <laughs> And my pastor and three or four other men in the church, we drove down here one day, and I remember it as if it was yesterday. And I remember where it stood when he said it to me. It was right over there. And this building was dark. It was dank. It was musty. Of course, there was no carpets on the floor. There was no seats. There was benches around. There was no radiators. There was a big glitter ball hanging from the ceiling, which is above that suspended ceiling. There's a big high stage over there where the dance bands used to be and all the rest of it. And he turned around to me. He says, uh, he used to always call me Dave. Don't know why, but he did. Dave, he says, uh, this would make a great place for a church. And I didn't say anything. I thought, really? <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> Farthest thought from my mind. I looked around and I thought, nah, there's a ton of work to do in here to make this into a church. I'm thinking this inside. I'm not saying it, I'm thinking it. That was all right. We all drove back again. And after some months in prayer, there was a decision made that this place would be purchased, a mortgage would be taken out, and uh, it would be a meeting place for believers to come. And, uh, and that was fine. I wasn't in the least concerned because I didn't think I'd be coming. <laughs> so it didn't bother me. Until he said, do you know what, Dave? He says, I think you and Sally should go down there and start a work. Well, suddenly, it's a different ball game. Of course, I could have said, no, thank you. Appreciate the kind offer and the confidence you have in me to do this, but thanks, but no thanks. But I didn't. I says, well, we'll pray about this. And only then did we start to feel, do you know what? I think God's in this. We'll give it a go. <laughs> What's the worst can happen? <laughs> we'll give it a go. And we gave it a go. And that was 37 years ago, last weekend, by the way. And we're still giving it a go. And I realized very quickly that even though it was a man saying it was God who was leading. And once we stepped in to the direction that God was leading, then everything changed. And we had nothing. We had no Hammond organ that we scrounged, but there's nobody to play it. But a few hymn books, but there's nobody to sing. Then a friend came along with guitar. That was it for a wee while. Then Clifford and Evelyn came. Evelyn's the first Sunday school teacher. Didn't have much of a Sunday school for having many coming. Samuel and David Lapp and the twins down there, they came. And sometimes they had to work different shifts and that meant that you'd lost half your congregation in one go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. That's, that's what it was like. <laughs> 
But when you're being led by God and you know you're in God's hand. Raymond reminded me just a couple of weeks ago, funnily enough, and I'd totally forgotten about this. Those times when we just had that one fella on acoustic guitar, he reminded me that I said from this pulpit that one day we'd have musicians from one end of the pulpit to one end of the stage to the other. And that's what we have today. It didn't seem like it then. Nobody wanted to come to Moira. Moira, where's that? <laughs> Why are you here? Has God led you? Sometimes it takes a wee while to know that and to find that out. Sometimes it's instant. Sometimes you know beforehand. But sometimes it's only I being in the way the Lord led me. So it's wonderful whenever you feel that God is leading and guiding. Then, no matter what happens, you feel I'm in the will of God. And that's the best place to be. It's the greatest place to be. Doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't mean you haven't got humps in the road that you've got to... But it means you know he's with you. And you're in his hand. Now, I said earlier, by the way, that people get the name of their sweetheart on some part of their body or elsewhere to simply declare their love to one another. And metaphorically speaking, God has inscribed your name on his hands. But do you know that one day you're going to have God's name inscribed on your forehead. <laughs> Honestly, truly. It's scripture. Come with me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, reading from verse 7. This is speaking about the church in Philadelphia, the faithful church. Verse 7, Unto the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and you will know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole earth, to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. Note this. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God, and I will write on him my new name. This is Jesus speaking, remember. He is in the air, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And so the faithful ones, because that's the church that he's speaking to, the faithful ones, 
He says, I'm going to write the name of God and the name of the city of God and my new name on your forehead. You will fully identify with me. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. I, I haven't time to go into this tonight. If you want to know more all about the book of Revelation, we have a whole series on it at the back there. But these are going to be 144,000 Jewish evangelists who will go throughout the earth evangelizing. They're saved, they're born again. And God has seated them. He's stamped them. He's inscribed upon them on their very foreheads. And then in chapter 9, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth as a messenger. It can be an angel. To him is given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke came out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. And out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth. To them was given power as the scorpions of the earth of power. And they were commanded not to hurt, to harm the grass of the earth, nor any green thing or any tree, which would be against natural instinct. But only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads that was 144,000. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion, torment of a, torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, but death will flee from them. Uh, by the way, there's a, a series of seven three, seven series of, of judgments that will fall upon the earth uh, that's mentioned in the book of Revelation. And then in Revelation uh, 13, and so God is sealing and God is marking and God is inscribing upon the ones that he chose. But note this, Chapter 13 of Revelation. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his ten horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, his mouth was like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. The beast is the Antichrist here. The dragon is the devil. 
he gives him the power. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. The world today is looking for a superman. They're looking for somebody to come on the scene and sort out the mess. And we are in a mess in the world, aren't we? All the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast who is able to make war with him. He was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. That's three and a half years. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God and to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, the people who got saved during this tribulation period. And authority was given by the 144,000, by the way. And the authority was given him over every tribe and tongue and nation. All who dwell on the earth shall worship him. Those whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here's the patience and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. This is the false prophet. So here you have the unholy trinity in Revelation 13. And caused those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he has granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast would both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Uh, don't we see in the Old Testament that wicked king who made that great golden statue where men had to bow down and worship? That was a precursor to this. He causes all, both great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here's wisdom, that him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Is it possible for the whole world to get behind one man? Sure it is. A strong leader. A superman. A man that the world will think is the wisest man that has ever lived. A charismatic man. And not only that, but to have a false prophet to perform great signs, supernatural signs. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. Almost finished. Revelation 20. 
Then I saw an angel, this is verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he, could, so that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the Word of God. Beheading has suddenly become very popular. Am I right? And throughout the ages, there were times when it was popular. The Japanese, during the Second World War, were great at beheading people. We have ISIS today who take great delight in beheading even children today. All of this is a precursor to when the Antichrist comes. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. And then finally, chapter 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And the servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their Foreheads. Who's this talking about? You and me. <laughs> you see, the enemy copies, imitates the things of God. And so he wants to mark and to stamp his name on people. Where did he get that idea from? From God. But in the end, everyone who names the name of Christ, everyone who will be in the celestial city will have the name of God stamped on their forehead. Is it metaphorical? I'm not sure. I know the mark of the beast is not metaphorical. It's literal enough. but we'll be marked by God, owned by God as God's children. Let me say this as we finish. There's, of course, another way that God has inscribed our names on the palm of his hands. At Calvary. His hands were pierced his side was pierced, but his hands were pierced. 
and his hands today are still pierced. When we see Jesus, his hands will be pierced as a reminder. Dare I say that every time he looks at his hands, he's reminded of us. He paid the price for us, for you, for me. And forever and forever throughout all the eternity of the eternities, his hands are pierced as a reminder. And we'll see those pierced hands. <laughs> you know, people say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jesus this and that. We're not going to ask him a thing. We're just going to fall down at his feet. Hallelujah. We'll be just overwhelmed by his beauty and his love and his grace and his compassion for us and his mercy. He's a wonderful God, isn't he? And we are marked by him for eternity. Glory to God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Blessed be your name. What a joy it is to know Jesus Christ as Savior. Thank you, Lord. Hmm. The half has never yet been told. Lord, we thank you for that day and hour you saved us. Our lives have been changed forever. And we bless you. And thank you that our names are in the book of life written with your blood. Lord, we thank you that our names are in the palms of your hands. So we have much to rejoice about tonight, much to thank you for. What mercy, what grace, what love, what suffering you went through, what price you paid. And so we humbly bow our hearts before you tonight and we say, thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for saving our eternal souls. Thank you for making us fit for your heaven. We who were undeserving, who were lost and undone, and yet in your mercy you found us and saved us. And Lord, one day your name will be stamped on our foreheads. And just as you're proud to wear our name on your hands, we'll be proud to wear your name on our foreheads. And we'll be yours forever and forever and a day. So we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, who made it all possible for us, we give him the honor and the glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.